From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. I think it's safe to say that most of us, whether or not we're qualified, are spending a lot of time these days devouring the news, analyzing data, trying to get a read on what is going to happen in the coming weeks, months, and years. We're anxious about the future. But increasingly, I find myself preoccupied with the past. Lately, I've been wondering, what lessons can we learn from previous pandemics that might help us find a way out of this one? And can these insights from history drive tomorrow's breakthroughs? To get answers to those questions, I called up my old friend, Stephen Johnson. Stephen has written 11 books about scientific progress, and one of them, Ghost Map, feels like essential reading right now. It's part forensic history and part detective story about how the cholera epidemic in London in 1854 not only revolutionized medicine, but also changed urban life as we know it. When he's not writing bestsellers, Stephen hosts American Innovations, a podcast from Wondery about... Well, the title says it all. He's got a new series out now called Fighting Coronavirus, about the bold thinking that will hopefully lead us out of this crisis. And I wanted to talk to him about some of those ideas. So I caught up with Stephen last week while he was holed up with his family in a cabin in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Okay, I'm going to pour myself a little cup of tea. Later into the pandemic, that'll just be whiskey at this time in the afternoon, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Stephen Johnson. What a pleasure, my friend, to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Uh, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Well, Stephen, may- maybe it's worth mentioning to the listeners here that we've actually known each other for, for a while. I think it was uh, fourth grade. Yes. I have a whole set of stories that I could tell about you to your audience, but I think we should focus on more serious things today. But yes, it's been a long road. <laughs> uh, believe you me, I, I have uh, equal and opposite stories about you, Stevens. But yes, we not only went to elementary school and high school together, but we went to college together and even were housemates junior year of college. Yes, I remember that apartment well, and I'm surprised there were no terrible diseases that erupted out of that space because it was probably the, the least uh, sanitary space I've ever lived in in my entire <laughs> no. life. Well, Stephen, as you know, you're the perfect person to be talking with about this unusual moment we're all in. You're the host of the Wondery podcast, American Innovations, which has just launched a special miniseries called Fighting Coronavirus, which is focused on telling, I, I really like this, stories of heroism and collaboration and invention. And you also wrote a book called Ghost Map about the cholera epidemic in London in 1854. Um a central theme of your book, and I think now of your podcast, seems to be that epidemics have the potential to bring out the best in us and, and trigger innovation. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The particularly intense epidemics like the one we're going through now and, and like the one in 1854 that I wrote about in the Ghost Map tend to produce solutions to the problems that they pose, right? And there's a lot of terror appropriately and uncertainty in this kind of moment. But we've already seen just in the first, you know, two or three months of of this virus being a global issue, 
an extraordinary pace of of response to it. There's already a lot of people collaborating, both in terms of vaccines, in terms of therapeutics, in terms of, you know, just public health and epidemiology and data that has kind of erupted around the world. And that's that's the positive side of these things. And hopefully we end up at the end of this crisis better prepared for the next one because we went through this. And that's that that is, you know, that was one of the major reasons why I wrote Ghost Map in the first place, and that's one of the reasons, um, key reasons that we started the fighting coronavirus series um, because we wanted to be talking about what you know what we were going to do going forward to prevent something like this happening again. My recollection, Stephen, is that your senior thesis in college was about plagues, which <laughs> and so this this starts to look like a pattern. Was there some kind of morbid yeah. preoccupation that you had with massive viral infections? You know. It, I, it, it's funny, I almost had forgotten about that senior thesis, which was, yeah, it was about, you know, somewhat pretentiously, the subtitle, I believe, was The Discourse of Epidemic. And I'm sure it's unreadable now because I was a very pretentious college writer at that point. But I kind of came back to the topic with Ghost Map, and it largely came out of my interest in cities and in, and in density um, mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. history of kind of metropolitan life, which, of course, is a, is a big thing going on with COVID-19 now as well. And the story, for those of you who, who are listening who don't, who don't know it, London in the, in the 1850s was the largest city the world had ever seen. It was two and a half million people. No one had ever built a city on that scale before. And it was being besieged by these outbreaks of epidemic disease a number of diseases, actually, but cholera was probably the the most pronounced of them. And every other year, every three or four years, there'd be a wave of cholera outbreaks and 10,000 people in a city of 2 million people Hmm. would die of this disease. And everybody at the time thought that it was transported in the air. They thought it was kind of the smells that were causing people to get sick. And so they were fighting what they thought was basically an airborne disease when, in fact, cholera is caused by contaminated drinking water. And so in the middle of this outbreak that erupts in Soho in London, a doctor named John Snow goes out in the middle of this outbreak and does this heroic investigation, tracking down where people have died and what numbers. And he creates a map that shows this intense concentration of, of death right around a pump in the center of Soho. And using that map, he slowly convinces the authorities that, in fact, everybody's getting sick in Soho because this well at the bottom of this pump has been contaminated with this disease and that cholera is, in fact, a waterborne disease and not an airborne disease. And that changes the whole understanding of what was causing people to get sick and leads to the building of the London sewers and a whole host of other things. And by 1866, cholera in epidemic form is gone from London for good, like never to return. So in in just 12 years, thanks in in large part to Jon Snow's investigation and a whole host of other interventions that were put in place after that, this deadly threat was effectively eliminated. And it really changed the way that cities were built. It, it, It enabled cities to get much more you know, much larger in size without these threats of uh, of epidemic disease. So it's a milestone in the in the history of public health. And and you've also pointed out that 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 one of the things that was distinctive about that moment is that the public all of a sudden had access to all this data, right? That they were releasing what was it twice a week or something, all this yeah. this uh, uh, the mortality data, which which does strike me as being reminiscent of this moment where we are all like armchair epidemiologists. Uh, absolutely, and and actually one of the things that was interesting in in writing Ghost Map was that 
I had always heard the story is this triumph of this lone, you know, genius hero, Jon Snow. And and Snow is no doubt the hero of the story in many ways, but he had a lot of collaborators. There was a guy um, named William Farr, who years before that had decided to release these much more kind of data-rich mortality reports. And he had this idea that if you could get data out about who had died, what they had died of, what their age was, what what their sex was, what you know, what their address was, if you had all that data, that people would be able to use it and see patterns in that data that, you know, the other people might not be able to see. Mm-hmm. And far in a sense, I was saying the other day to someone that it's like we're all kind of living in William Farr's world now because you've heard a lot in the last few days about Farr's law. And Farr's law is the curve that we're all talking about, that epidemics you know, tend to crest and then subside. And that pattern that we're all in the middle of trying to figure out, like, where is the peak and when is the, when are we going to hit the apex? It was William Farr, this guy in, in London in the eight, early 1840s, who first saw that pattern. And so now here we are you know, 160, 170 years later, and, you know, we're, we're all of us watching this. And we've seen definitely a, a bunch of kind of interpretations that have proven to be wrong. But the presence of that data is, you know, it's so different from the way that it was, you know, 200 years ago, that that, that kind yeah. of data analysis simply didn't exist. Yep. And, and even even 10 years ago, we didn't have some of this data. Like, for instance, I've been fascinated about these uh, these new smart thermometers, right? There are a million plus Americans using Wi-Fi connected thermometers that are providing some new data that we would not otherwise have about the onset of fevers well before people would go to a hospital. How important do you think the data is? And, and do you think the mapping component that was so critical in the cholera epidemic is something that's that's equally relevant today? I mean, it's huge. And, and you know, this is one of the things that I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about on fighting coronavirus, which is like, what are the innovations that are now possible that weren't even imaginable, certainly to William Farr and Jon Snow, but, you know, to, to people, as you say, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like, wh- what's the data revolution that's now possible? And that's the side of it that I, I do think is very encouraging. So, so for those of folks listening who, who didn't track this story, basically, the thermometer data is suggesting that the stay-at-home policies are beginning to show an effect because you see a reduction in fevers across the board, even if you're not necessarily seeing the hospitalizations or the deaths go down, because there's such a big lag for people who do get sick that takes them a while to get hospitalized. And then, unfortunately, if they end up dying, it takes them a while. But the folks who are are no longer getting sick because of the stay-at-home policies, their fevers are not showing up in the data because they never got sick in the first place. And so you're seeing over time in the last few days this dramatic fall off in average fever yep. in New York and in San Francisco. And I think the data they they released just in the last few days said that they were seeing that three to seven days after shelter-in-place orders go into effect, fevers in each community start to drop, which is reassuring because we've been bunkered down for weeks, and, and yet we're watching hospitalization and death rates rise. And, and so it's, it, it's nice to see some evidence that what we're doing is hopefully having an impact. If you think about it, like our defense against COVID-19 right now is at the very end of the you know, most dangerous part of the cycle, a ventilator. But other than that, we don't we don't yet have therapeutics. We don't have a vaccine yet, and so really we're kind of in in the same place that Snow and William Farr were in the sense that we're fighting this thing with data right now. 
Like we're, we're saying, okay, we can see from the data that it is coming to this city. So we need to shut down and keep it from spreading that way. And that's our really our only, we have ventilators and data and our own actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right now that's, that, those are the only tools we have at our disposal yeah, in, yeah. in a funny right. you know, way. Now, hopefully that's going to change very quickly and we're going to have a bunch of therapeutics and we're going to have vaccines. Stephen, it's been really fun to go back and reread sections of Ghost Map. So you wrote, this was in 2007 that it was published. You said, a decade or two from now, we may have tools that will allow us, using computer modeling, to build an effective vaccine or antiviral drug in a matter of days. Now, we're clearly not there yet, but is that a vision that you still think is is in our future? Yes, I think it is. There are a couple of different components to it. So the first is part of what I was arguing for in that in that chapter is that we were going we were just at the beginning of a genetic genomic revolution, right? And we were going to be able to do all this kind of sequencing stuff that you know had been unthinkable a decade before I wrote that book. And in some sense, that's already there. I mean, like we had this thing sequenced a month after it was first reported. So on that level, it's amazing. And in fact, you know, we have vaccines that are in trials as of three weeks ago, right? So the the pace of vaccine development, yeah, it's not in a matter of days, but at least we we actually have vaccines that are going into trials or that have been into trials for weeks, just you know, two or three months after this this organism was first identified. So we should be encouraged by that. But you know, now the the longest part of the process is the trial. And so one of the interesting ideas that's come out just in the last couple of days, there's a paper proposing this, is with something like COVID-19, there's a real argument for what's called a challenge trial as opposed to a standard efficacy trial. The normal way you would do a, a vaccine for something like this is that you would get a big sample of people, give them the vaccine, and then let, let them go out into the world mm-hmm. um, and see if they come down with the disease just in their you know, normal life. In a challenge trial you actually expose the person to the virus itself. You do kind of deliberately infect them with the virus and, and see if the vaccine works. And that enables you to speed it up dramatically. But, you know, you wouldn't do that with Ebola. Um, sure. Because, you know, so many people would die. But the argument with COVID is, you know, because of the demographics of it, if you are guaranteed access to a ventilator and you're healthy and you're 25, you know, the odds of you getting really sick are, are we, we believe, pretty slim. And so the idea is if you properly inform people, you could do these challenge trials and you might be able to shave you know, months off the development cycle in, in figuring out which of these vaccines work. So there's a lot, of, a lot of rapid fire thinking, not just about the development of the vaccines, but the development of, of, of the tests that we use to prove which ones work and which ones don't. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Stephen, you've written extensively about cities, um, and of course, population density is both a problem when it comes to viruses, but also an accelerator of the innovation that helps us solve them. So how do you think about this sort of uh, mixed blessing of the density of cities? I suspect what we're going to find is that cities, as always, are incredibly resilient and that people 
do want to be in these you know vibrant places where so many ideas are generated and we'll develop some new systems you know we may be wearing masks in the united states in big cities for the next year or two that just may be something that happens which is all right i can live with that if we can all get back to going out to a restaurant and seeing our friends and walking in the park the other thing i wonder about i've just started thinking about this a little bit is is it possible that we're going to have to learn as a society what I've been calling kind of a pandemic mode (laughs) where we have everything stockpiled both financially and in terms of healthcare equipment and in terms of job security and healthcare so that we can basically do what we've been doing for the last three or four weeks, but with practice and without the uncertainty. So we can just say, okay, guys, pandemic mode, everything needs to shut down for four weeks. It's okay. Everybody's going to keep their job. We, we we prepared for this. We have plenty of ventilators. We have all this kind of stuff, but but we're going to have to do this, and we can we can cut this thing off immediately because we're all shutting down in sync. And that that may be a societal kind of muscle we we need to develop a kind of a routine that's kind of like the a version of like okay now we all need to go on summer vacation. <laughs> you know we we have collective rituals that we do. Um, we may need to learn how to do that one, but that's going to take. That's going to take planning and that's going to require us to listen to the scientists and all the things that we don't always do as well in this country. You know, I'm interested in how a crisis like this impacts how we view science. It strikes me as a real positive that right now we're all turning to doctors and scientists. Do you think that a moment like this modifies, do you think it increases our collective respect for scientists? I sure hope so. I mean, what is, you know... (laughs) (laughs) Like, <laughs> if this doesn't, I mean, I don't know what does, you know? I mean, yeah. the way I've been describing it a little bit, I'm, I'm, one, of, one of the projects that I'm working on now that will come out next year is a big look at life expectancy. Basically, we doubled life expectancy over the last hundred years as a society, which is this extraordinary achievement. And it's been provided to us by this kind of invisible shield of public health and of science, medical science, and all these things that we just... Comp- you know, they're so ubiquitous that we don't think about them. Clean drinking water, all of these innovations that had to be fought for. And what what happens in a in an outbreak like this is that that shield becomes visible. And to some extent, it becomes visible in the sense that we see the holes that remain in it, right? We see the ways in which, okay, the shield isn't tall enough or strong enough to protect us from this particular emergent threat that we didn't anticipate. So we have to make it even stronger. But we do see the like heroism of, of all the first responders. We do see the importance and the kind of visionary quality of the epidemiologists who've been predicting this kind of pandemic for years and years and years. Um, and so, I think it's an opportunity for society to say, "Okay, these are the you know these are the people who who are keeping us alive." I, I've always thought it's so funny that in our normal lives, the people that that most of us most admire and look up to are actors whose job it is to pretend to be heroes, right? (laughs) I mean, like the actor who pretends to be Jon Snow in the eventual film version of Ghost Map is somebody that people look up to and admire more than the actual people on the ground. But in these short moments, we all of a sudden entirely disregard all these celebrities and gain enormous respect for the real heroes. Or even like I, I started thinking about it a little bit in terms of like monuments, right? Like so, there is in London. If you go visit Soho, there is a little replica of the pump mm. that 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 you know Snow shut down. But it's like 
three feet high. You you know you have to look for it. You have to actually be seeking it out. But like, think about all the lives that were saved. You know, not the lives lost, but the, like the lives that people got to live and mm-hmm. got to have children and got to meet their grandchildren because of the heroes of public health in the past. And so the the people who keep us safe are really the public health people and the healthcare workers and that whole system and 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 institutions too, like the World Health Organization, right? The World Health Organization like eliminated smallpox. I mean, that's an insane achievement. I mean, smallpox mm-hmm. was an absolutely terrifying thing, it, yeah. it, it, a huge killer, and it's gone. That should be celebrated the way we celebrate the moon landing, you know, or the 4th of July. It was something mm-hmm. that we did globally, yeah. collectively, that yeah. was unimaginable just 100 years before. That's our finest hour. Turning to the cultural side of the conversation, I'm fascinated by how this moment is changing our behaviors, like individually, collectively. Do you think some of these are going to stick? You know, I I work from home. My wife works from home. My kids spend a lot of their social time interacting with their friends virtually. And so particularly when we were still in Brooklyn and we were just in lockdown mode there, it actually didn't feel very different. <laughs> like we like to cook. <laughs> so we eat at home. You know, we're, we're, we're a little bit stay at home. So we I happily go a week without actually like going out. And so... I had a strange kind of feeling that we <laughs> we've been preparing for this moment all this time, uh, and that we were kind of well suited for it. And and it actually hasn't been that much of a transition for our kids because their social network is just so completely enmeshed in these virtual worlds that they cohabitate with their pals. Um, that that just switching over and saying actually that's the only way you can hang out with your friends, they're like okay, well that's pretty much what we were doing anyway, except for school. So I, I don't see the difference. So there, I think we're we're realizing how much our kind of social nervous system has been slowly but steadily digitized over the last twenty or twenty five years, and there are some parts of it that that are actually kind of nice. I mean, I, I, my big joke is like, I think people are realizing that how much wasted time there is in face to face meetings in most office environments. That you know, people are like, oh, there's a four o'clock meeting, and Bob's going to show his PowerPoint, perhaps. Another positive thing that will come out of COVID-19 is the, the end of gratuitous meetings. <laughs> well, Stephen, I don't, I don't know whether to be happy for you or concerned that your family has not been engaging in face-to-face interactions with other homo sapiens <laughs> for many, many months. <laughs> I do find myself, like, the thing that I, that I find myself really missing and, and swearing to myself that I'm going to save her when I get it back is... Is, is not so much like hanging out with friends so much as it is just like being around a lot of people, like the feeling of like going to a restaurant and it's filled with people and everybody's chatting or like going yeah, out yeah. on a beautiful day in the park yeah. and walking around and even just like being on a New York City s- sidewalk and everybody's even, even like riding the subway. Like, I mean, I'm missing that. Like, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and I and I hope it won't be tinged with dread. Um for a sustained period of time when we get it back, I hope we can get it back and be like, okay, you know, we can enjoy these things again and we can appreciate them now that we've got them back um, because they are such a beautiful part of the experience of, of cities. And uh, I miss that. I miss that more than I miss my yep, friends, I yep. guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I think you're right though. That is a really interesting observation, which is this kind of like ambient social experience of this kind of yeah. like, a- like ambient intimacy is is really lovely and, and and you really notice that when it's removed um and it strikes me that like the question how are you is is sort of you know normally like how are you great good, uh, how, how are you good thanks to actually 
ask the question, how are you, with deep intent and, and, to, and for, to have the person respond sincerely and to listen, that's a very novel experience. And It's also everybody's having to invent their own personal or family response to this. So sure. uh, part of the, the how are you is, is, is when you ask how are you, or ask about what people are doing, it's I want to make sure you're safe and I want to hear about that because I'm worried about you. But it's also like yep. – what's your strategy? Like everybody wants to talk, like, what are you doing? Like what, you know, like, what are you doing with the kids? Like, what's your strategy? What are you thinking about when you would return? How are you managing the sidewalks? If you're still in the city, all these things, there's a lot of just bottom up, almost folk expertise that had to be invented on the fly for this, that, that we're all kind of sharing. Absolutely. Stephen, what, as, as you're looking out at the coming months of, of uncertainty, what gives you hope right now? Well, I, I've been incredibly impressed with the the pace of response in terms of things like vaccine development, in terms of things like these therapeutics that are going into trials. There, I mean, there are probably hundreds now of trials of various different forms of therapeutics and vaccines. We have a lot of expertise that we didn't have. We have a lot of resources. You know, we talked earlier about challenge trials. You know, we're, we're talking about... Um, starting to ramp up production of vaccines even before they pass the trial so that mm -hmm. we can, you know, put, so a lot of the lag is actually getting them at scale. So there's just a tremendous amount of work going into that. And that's, that's certainly something we're going to be watching really closely and talking to people on the front lines of in fighting coronavirus. But I think we'll start getting good news about therapeutics probably in the next month or two, and that's going to be really encouraging. And then we will start to see some of these vaccines being fast-tracked out of trials and you know maybe we'll be able to do it faster than a year there's an opportunity i hope for a kind of a, a deep exhalation while wearing a mask <laughs> for us as a society uh two or three months from now but it's clear that it's going to be a brutal couple of weeks and we're going to have to all hang in there through this period because there's not there's there's no medicine coming as a as a cure as a rescue in the short term. And so we just got to, we just got to stay at home. I, I, I'd love to read a little passage from the end of Ghost Map because I think it's quite uplifting. However profound the threats of today, they are solvable. If we acknowledge the underlying problem, if we listen to science and not superstition, if we keep a channel open for dissenting voices that might actually have real answers. And then you say, the only question is, can we steer around these crises without killing 10 million people or more. And I was struck by that number, right? Clearly, it is conceivable that we could face a virus that could kill tens of millions of people. And, and I, I guess one sort of slight consolation is, as far as we can tell right now, this does not seem to be that virus. So we may look back at this as a kind of fire drill that, yeah. for which we were grateful. You know, one of the things, I don't know, I haven't seen a lot of talk about this, but there's a chance that e even if we follow a kind of, let's say, middle case scenario over the next four or five months, that overall life expectancy at the end of this crisis will will be unchanged or, or it might even go up slightly because we've reduced so many other deaths through the stay-at-home process. Yep, yep. Car and, accidents uh, must be down. Yep. Car accidents are way down. Um, crime is way down. And... And flu is way down, actually. There are going to be far yeah. fewer flu deaths than normal this year. So we might end up with, in terms of the sum total of, of life preserved by this, it might actually net out to be you know, not, not as 
catastrophic or even negative as as we thought. And it's still a tragedy, and we want to avoid it at all costs. But it could the the point you're making is an important one, which is it. it this could have been worse. Like this, you know, we were lucky that the fatality rates are so low um, in, you know, in the under 60 group without, you know, other existing conditions. And that's not inevitable. That was not the case with the Spanish flu, right? The Spanish flu had this weird propensity for killing 22-year-olds, healthy 22-year-olds. I mean, just think about it as a parent, like that, you know, we've gone through this incredible trauma, but fundamentally, parents haven't been worried about their kids. So imagine if this were happening and everybody's just like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, my children are going to die. Uh, it would it would have yeah. felt so much, so much worse. Um, so I think you're right. There's, there, there may, you know, this is something that it's probably better to talk about when we get through it because it's so arduous going through it now. But, you know, yes, there could very easily be a worse version of this. And if we've gone through this and build up that shield and train ourselves for pandemic mode so that we can meet that threat when that threat emerges. That that may yep. be another good thing that, that comes out of this. Stephen, thank you for taking time out of your busy virtual socializing and cooking and other activities in the Johnson household. It's been wonderful well, talking I'm with you. I'm actually not that busy, but I <laughs> even if I had been busy, I would have absolutely taken the time. It's always great to be with you, Rufus. <laughs> Thanks again to Steven Johnson for joining us today. You can check out his new podcast, Fighting Coronavirus, by following the link in our show notes. Next week, I'll be speaking with Ingrid Fatel-Lee. She's the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And she's going to tell us why small decisions we make about what surrounds us, even when we're stuck inside, can have a profound impact on our state of mind. If you've been tempted to join the Next Big Idea Club, there has never been a better time. In the middle of this global crisis, I like to think that we are all a little more focused on the important stuff. It's a great time to discuss life-changing ideas with the world's leading thinkers and a growing community of curious people like you. Join me, Stephen Johnson, and many other authors featured on this podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. We're offering a free digital membership, including access to our e-courses and community for three months. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com dot com slash podcast and get three free months. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Join us. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kavnot. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Wondering.